Welcome to the show, everybody. It's another episode of Topical with Michael Schaefer, with your host, Michael Schaefer. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you might be wanting to know how do I come up with the content every week to talk about? How do I know what stories I want to hit? Basically, what I do is I'll go on Twitter, I'll see what people are talking about on Twitter, I'll go to the newspaper website, see what people are talking about, I'll have conversations with people at dinners and lunches and find out what they're thinking, what they're talking about. That's kind of how I decide what to talk about on this podcast. Now, of course, the last few weeks has been a very Israel-Palestine heavy series of episodes, mostly because that's been the big news story for the past few weeks. That has been dominating the news cycle for the past few weeks. But... It is nice to know that things are starting to get back to normal, at least in the Australian media, because as I was scrolling through Australian media websites the last couple of hours to see what is happening in the news back there, I went to the front page of theage.com.au. Now, The Age is the newspaper of note in Melbourne, Victoria, probably the most respected newspaper in that city, and on the front page, theage.com.au, the masthead, the leading story this week is parking permit rules divide inner north council. And that's nice. That is nice because usually on this podcast, we're talking about the big issues like borders dividing Israel and Palestine. But this week, we're talking about parking permit rules dividing Inner North Council residents. Guys, this is huge. This is why you all tune in. You want to hear the hot button issues. This is the funniest start to an article I've ever seen. It's, it's just in the context of this Middle East war, it's so funny to be talking about parking permits in a very wealthy white suburb that purports to be very progressive and very up-to-date with what's happening around the world. This article features a woman with purple hair, a white woman with purple hair. Of course it does. Welcome to the inner north. I'm sure she's polyamorous as well. This article says a contentious two-decade-old street parking rule has been overturned by an Inner North Council against its own planning officer's recommendation. Wow. It goes on to say that people who live in homes built after 2004 will have to apply for permits to park in on-street bays. People who live in houses built before 2004 could access up to two on-street parking permits. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. This is fantastic. You know, the people of the inner north, they're not debating about whether or not there should be a two-state solution. They are debating about whether or not there should be two parking permits allocated per household for homes built before and after 2004. Guys, it's so nice to know. The, well, I guess this is an insight into what people's attention spans are when it comes to a war in the Middle East. I think we can cap it 
at seven weeks. The war kicked off on the 7th of October. This is being recorded on the 28th of November. So what's that? Just over seven weeks. That is the attention span for white people when it comes to wars in the Middle East. I think that's a good effort. I think that's a good effort. That's that's more than usual, to be honest. When was last time there was something kicked off in the Middle East? You know, whether it's... Even like the war in Syria, we kind of covered that for a few days because ISIS was involved and that was kind of exciting and relevant to us because everyone was really scared about ISIS in 2014 and, you know, everyone and, you know, yet Sonia Kruger on morning television calling for Muslims to be banned from coming to Australia because she was a mother and that gave her credibility to talk about Australian immigration policies and to vent her Islamophobia to a national audience before she would later go on to win a gold Logie because... Australia is as racist as people think it is. Back in 2014, we cared about this, the war in Syria for a few days because ISIS was kind of connected with that. We were worried about ISIS. We cared about the Israel-Palestine war for seven weeks, just over seven weeks, but then that story was overshadowed by the parking permit dispute in Northcote. That really sums up, I think, white people culture, Australian culture, inner north culture. Because, again, the inner north in Melbourne is meant to be the most progressive group of people. They're meant to be the people on the streets chanting, you know, free, free Palestine from the river to the sea. And they did that for two weeks when it was fun and when it was getting attention. And now they've gone back to their core personality which is ensuring they have somewhere to park their SUVs outside their homes this is white culture to a T I love it I love how honest it is I love how this war is still going and it's there's no real end in sight but white people what I love is how they have found a way to bring her back home, to make things local again. Sure, things are bad over in the Middle East. But I had to circle the block three times last night to find a place to park my Volkswagen Golf. These are the issues that white people care about. Now, I apologize. I, my attention span is still longer than seven weeks. I don't know how much longer it is, but I'm going to talk about the Israel-Palestine war a bit more today. It's not just going to be about the war. I'm also going to talk about uh, Christmas movies being cancelled as well on this episode. So if you are sick, if, you are, if you're listening in the inner north and you tuned in because you wanted to hear my thoughts on the parking permit scandal that is currently dominating the news in Melbourne, Victoria... I apologize. I don't really have much to say about it. To be honest, I don't like to weigh into such controversial topics. I feel much more comfortable talking about the ongoing war in Gaza. I don't want to get angry comments and messages from uh, women with pink hair 
telling me that I haven't researched enough the history of the parking permits fiasco that is plaguing the inner city of Melbourne right now. So I'm going to talk about Israel and Palestine, but if you want to fast forward to the end where I'm talking about Christmas movies being cancelled, feel free to just like tune into the last, I, I imagine, five minutes or so. But we want to talk about Israel and Palestine. There has been some progress in the war. There was a bit of a pause during the war, which I think is good. I, I think pauses are good in war. I think it's good to pause, have a pause, everyone take a breath, everyone meditate, uh, think about what you're grateful for, and then go back to bombing and killing each other relentlessly. There was a a pause so that the two sides could exchange hostages. So, well, Israel was returning uh, prisoners and Hamas was returning some hostages. And I think that's good. It's nice to see that the two sides are capable of a pause. It is nice to see that that is possible because often it's very hard to get countries to pause during a war. If you look at the history of wars, like in World War One, I'm pretty sure they had a Christmas pause. I'm, I'm pretty sure that when like white people go to war, they take a day off for Christmas, which I think is nice. I think that's what Jesus would want. Je- baby Jesus would say, hey, I get it. Sometimes you got to blow off a bit of steam. So- sometimes 364 days of the year, you got to be uh, shooting mustard gas into each other's trenches. I understand that I'm baby Jesus, but I would appreciate it if on my, if on my birthday, you could stop... Uh, the trench warfare, just for 24 hours and just be grateful, spend time with your loved ones and then on Boxing Day, go back to killing each other once again. So when white white people will pause for Christmas, which I think is nice, and what is particularly concerning about the current war between the Jewish-Israeli state and the Muslim-Palestinian state, predominantly Muslim-Palestinian state, is that they're not going to pause for Christmas. That's that's a concern. It'll be gr- we really have to get this wrapped up before Christmas, I think. Because they're not going to take a day off on Christmas. The Jews and the Muslims unfortunately unfortunately don't have Christmas in common. I think it's maybe Israel will take off Hanukkah, which would be nice because that's 8 days. They could there could be an 8 day pause. If Israel takes off Hanukkah, that would be nice. That would stop the killing for a bit. But of course, Hamas, they're not going to be celebrating Hanukkah. So it's going to be hard to find a holiday that gets these two different religious groups to to stop killing each other. (sighs) When's Ramadan? I think Ramadan... I think it's around, do you know what? Ramadan, I think, is like March, April. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I'm, I'm, know I'm not getting this exactly right, but I'm pretty confident that Ramadan is around March, April, which is also, and I think it overlaps with uh, Passover for the Jewish people. So 
I guess we can look forward to a pause sometime in March, April, when the Hamas militants are busy not eating and the Jewish people are busy eating crackers for for Passover. If you're not Jewish, you won't appreciate it, but this is way at this cracker. It's called matzah. It's this awful, awful... It's You're not allowed to have bread when you're Jewish over Passover, so you eat this cracker in instead of bread. And the cracker is it's really constipating. It's a very awful, awful eight days. You just you're just backed up for eight days. You really don't want to do anything. You certainly don't want to wage war. So I think we can at least hope for a pause around the Ramadan Passover period, which I believe is going to be March or April or so. But sadly, it's going to be hard to get these two guys to do a pause until then, because like I said, they're not really, they don't care too much about Christmas. The other thing though that does get countries to pause for a bit is is a game of soccer. So there was this famous game of soccer played, maybe it was on Christmas, I can't remember, but there was a famous game of soccer, I believe, played during World War One, when the soldiers, again, I could be making this up, but I don't think I am, when the British soldiers and the German soldiers, it might have been on Christmas, just got together and said, hey... I know we've all been gassing each other with mustard gas and we've been burning each other alive with flamethrowers and we've been shooting at each other and throwing grenades, etc., etc. But that's in the past. Why don't we play a bit of friendly soccer and, you know, build some build some rapport with one another before we go back to killing each other tomorrow? Because I think it's nice to know who you're killing. I think that's nice. And so for a day, the British and the German soldiers paused so that they could have a, just a nice human moment together. I, is, that, is that an option for Israel and Palestine? Is, could, could, could Qatar broker a soccer match between the two countries that would distract them for a period of time so that they stopped uh, blowing each other up and, and killing each other and firing rockets and you know, blowing up hospitals and all that kind of stuff. Is that, is a soccer match something that could help? You know, often they say keep politics out of sports. That's a very common thing that people say. Don't bring politics into sports. What about if we brought sport into politics? Specifically, we brought sport into war, which is very much a a, a part of politics. So we if we brought just a soccer match we started playing soccer during the war. I think it would just be nice to see like some Hamas militants and some IDF soldiers just kicking the ball around, bonding about the things that unite them, like their mutual dislike for bacon. That's something that could bring things together. I'm just trying to find solutions. I'm just trying to find a way to extend this pause. I guess it is progress that we're seeing prisoners and hostages being exchanged. I think that is progress. I will say this. I think the way that people on social media are celebrating Hamas returning hostages, 
I think they're giving Hamas a bit too much credit because you go on social media and all these people who support the Palestinian movement are you know, sharing videos of Hamas releasing the hostages and being like, look at how humane Hamas are. They're releasing the hostages. They're, they're shaking their hands. They're carrying the old lady to, into the ambulance. They're being nice to them. And look, it is nice that they are releasing some hostages and it's nice that they're being nice to the hostages. I'm just not sure if we should give them credit though for that because they also did kidnap the hostages in the first place. So I don't think we can give them too much credit for now starting to release some of them. I mean, let's not forget they did do a lot of raping and murdering seven weeks ago and, and then the kidnapping of the hostages and they dragged them out of their homes and from music festivals and took them into Gaza and hid them in tunnels. I, I just don't think we should give them credit for now releasing the hostages. I don't think that now it's all even Stephen, but people are saying Hamas, they're good guys. They're really, I mean, like if I came into your house and kidnapped your child for seven weeks and then seven weeks later just turned up and says, and said, hey, here's your, here's your kid back. I don't think people on social media are going to be like, Michael Schaefer, what a hero. What a good guy. Here he is returning a child that he stole in the first place. I, I think it's great. I think it's a show of good faith that they're releasing some of the hostages. I just don't think that they are the heroes that a lot of people on social media are kind of making them out to be. Equally, Israel is releasing a lot of people that they've taken prisoner. And I don't think they should be getting too much credit for releasing some of these prisoners because a lot of these prisoners are super young. We're talking about like teenagers who were arrested and were never really formally charged, were just kind of kept in detention somewhat indefinitely. So equally, I don't think people can say, oh, look at the IDF. Well, aren't they good guys? All these children that they took off the street because they threw a rock once at a soldier in the West Bank are now being sent home. Like... I just don't think either side can get a, can have a lot of credit here just because the way they kind of came about these prisoners and hostages in the first place wasn't exactly in the best circumstances. But it is nice to see a bit of progress happening. Of course, the protests are continuing around the world. I will say this, I'm walking past a lot of pro-Palestinian protests in London and I think one of the reasons why they are getting big attendances, I understand that there is a, a real desire for Palestinian autonomy and self-determination that, of course, attracts people to these protests, of course. But I will say that the chants are very catchy, very catchy chants. See, you go to like the Israel protests, rallies, let's call them rallies, because I'm not sure what they're necessarily protesting well at least like they've branded them as rallies i'm not sure what a protest how a protest and a rally are different i guess a protest is like 
you want something you want something to change or something to stop and a rally's like we're just I think we're just hanging out at a rally. Anyway, if you go to an Israel rally where they're kind of they're hanging out and there's some speeches and there's some Israeli music and it's a sense of community, not a lot of like good chants. They're just chanting bring them home in reference to the hostages that remain in tunnels somewhere underneath Gaza. They're just chanting bring them home, which of course is a key message, a good, strong slogan, but it's not a doesn't rhyme, it's not catchy, doesn't really it doesn't really it's not a doesn't really kind of like stay in your head it's whereas you go to like a a palestinian protest catchy stuff real catchy stuff i mean first you got the classic from the river to the sea palestine will be free classic it rhymes that's always handy if you're going to do a protest you got to have a rhyme so rhymes are very powerful rhymes work okay i mean from the river to the sea palestine will be free catchy rhyme uh australia just uh, voted no on the referendum because the campaign against the referendum was don't know, vote no. Easy. Rhymes. Catchy. Bang. Uh, Lube Mobile will come to you. 133032. I know the number for Lube Mobile, a car service that I think is now defunct and used to advertise on Australian TV about 30 years ago. I still remember the advertisements and the slogan, Lubemobile will come to you, 133032. I know the number for Lubemobile from 30 years ago because they had a good chant, a good rhyme. So you go to the Palestinian protest, they know what they're doing. It's very well organized. They got the chants locked down. They've got the From the River to the Sea, Palestine will be free. They've got like one, two, three, four, some, something, something, no more. Israel should be no more. I can't remember exactly what they said. And then it's like five, six, seven, eight. Israel is a terrorist state. I don't agree with the messages. I don't agree with what they're saying, but I, I do agree with the rhyming structure of the slogans and their, the power that exists in a rhyme. And I think that if the Jewish rallies want to kind of attract more people, let's get some catchy rhymes going. How about uh, one, two, three, four... Uh, Hamas needs to be no more. Five, six, seven, eight. Uh, we support a two state. I think that, look, I'm just spitballing here, but I'm just saying there are, there are options available. There are probably better chances out there. I'm not a, I'm not a chant man. I'm not a slogan writer, but I'm sure someone who has experience with that could put together something quite catchy. Of course, p- people are protesting all around the world. In Australia, there have been school protests are all around Melbourne. So a lot of young people, a lot of like students in high school decided to take a day off school. They decided to wag school and instead go to this protest and it got a lot of coverage by the media and once again i support everyone's right to protest and if you're a a high school student go and protest i don't do whatever you want express yourself as long as you're not you know inciting violence or hatred go for it i also just by on that point of inciting violence and hatred a lot of people and i've had this discussion with a few friends who are jewish and not jewish are debating whether or not the from the river to the sea palestine will be free chant they're debating whether or not that chant is genocidal in that it 
implies the destruction of the state of Israel. Because if you take it literally, it's saying, well, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine will be free and all that area between is modern-day Israel. I find it, I guess, hard to accept that it's a genocidal chant just because I don't think that the mo- I don't think the intention is like we. I don't think the intention of those people who are saying it is like we have to kill all the Jews and destroy Israel as a state. That might just be naive of me. I just I don't think that the people saying that chant are like have thought about it that much. I think it's just an aspirational statement. It's just a way of uniting people. I personally don't perceive it as. A genocidal. I don't perceive it as anti-Semitic. I think it's just an aspirational chant calling for the creation of a Palestinian state that, you know, isn't subject to a blockade and isn't occupied and kind of has self-determination and autonomy. That's how I interpret it. Maybe that's too generous of me. Maybe I am being naive, but I don't interpret it as genocidal. I mean, if they were like uh, one, two, three, four, the Jews must be no more. Uh, five, six, seven, eight, um, the Jews I hate. That, I'd be like, hey, I think that's a bit anti-Semitic. I'm not a fan of that chant. That's a bit much for me. I'd still respect the rhyme, of course. you got to respect the rhyme. But I wouldn't take it as a genocidal statement. Nonetheless, all these kids have been protesting in Australia, calling for a ceasefire and calling for uh, Israel to stop uh, blowing up Gaza. And I think that's all perfectly reasonable. I will say this. I think that the high school students protesting, for me, it's kind of different from when they protested about the climate. If you remember a couple of years ago, you know, Greta Thunberg led this kind of worldwide campaign calling on young people, high schoolers, to, uh, you know, leave school for the day or for a couple of days and go and protest in the streets calling for climate change policies to be enacted in their countries. That kind of made sense to me because I think the next generation, Gen Z, are the ones who are going to be impacted the most by climate policies. So, And also they can't vote. So protesting is kind of the only way that they can try to influence politics on a topic that is probably going to affect them the most let's be honest because right now when it comes to climate change the people voting on climate change policies tend to be in their 50s and 60s and 70s and they don't really care so much about the fact that the earth will you know be inhabitable in 10 years because they're not planning to be here in 10 years they're planning they're planning to be dead so it makes sense for young people to feel activated by this issue. It directly affects them. But I feel like the war in Gaza is a little bit different because this is not an issue that really affects young people directly. It doesn't affect high schoolers directly because of their age. It can't. I don't think that high schoolers necessarily have more of a vested interest in this war in the same way that they had a vested interest in the climate change protests. I suspect, and 
well, I could be wrong. Maybe this is cynical. I suspect it's a great way to not go to school for a day because I'll be honest, school, in my experience, wasn't very fun. It wasn't very fun. You you go there, you have to sit in class all day. It's not fun. And kids these days, they go to school. It's even worse for them because they go to school. They're not allowed to have their mobile phones on them. Uh, they're not allowed to vape in class. And so, of course, they want to not go to school. Of course, the idea of going to Flinders Street Station and singing some chants, having a mobile phone, making some content for TikTok and vaping your double apple uh, jewel, of course, that is going to be more attractive as an outing. It's it, That's like a fun school excursion for the kids. So I might be being cynical here, and I hope that these kids are there for the right reasons because they do believe in a cause. But I do suspect that a lot of them were just there because they were like, oh, this is so much better than trigonometry. I suspect that might have been the case. Recently, there was another big protest by some actors who were performing in a production put on by the Sydney Theatre Company. So there was this play being put on and there were five actors, I believe, in the play. Three of them turned up I believe at the end of the play, wearing the Palestinian kafia, which is that kind of um, neck scarf that has now become like symbolic with Palestinian resistance. So three of the five actors came on at the end of the play wearing the kafia. Now, I think that's, I don't find that offensive at all. I'm a Jewish person. I support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. But it doesn't mean that I also don't support the Palestinian movement's right to exist as their own state as well. I'm not offended by seeing the kafia, But the Sydney Theatre Company received a lot of complaints afterwards. And the Sydney Theatre Company had to issue a statement apologising, and I quote, for any distress caused to people in the audience from seeing the kafia." Really? Is that how soft we've become as a society? That when someone wears a neck scarf, we feel a distress. I find it incredibly hypocritical because it's almost always the same people who condemn others for being snowflakes who then get upset by a neck scarf. Who gives a shit if... How can you be upset by the neck scarf? I, it doesn't represent anything other than Palestinian resistance. I mean, if they came out wearing you know, the Hamas bandana, fair enough. Fair enough. If you come out wearing the Hamas bandana and you've also got a swastika armband and you come out and you do the Heil Hitler salute at the end of the play, fair enough. I can imagine how that might cause you to feel some distress. But I don't think that just wearing a neck scarf is enough to warrant people issuing complaints and people feeling unsafe. I will also add that only three of the five actors came out wearing the kafia. I kind of feel a little bit sorry for the other two actors because clearly they were like, I don't want to be involved 
in anything controversial. You know, I've I'm an actor. I have to kind of just uh, actors, celebrities, people with high profiles right now generally do not want to go out and make statements in support of Israel and Palestine. I mean, we just saw that Susan Sarandon, the actor in the US, was dropped by her agency for coming out and supporting Palestine and going to some movements. Amy Schumer has come out in support of Israel and Jewish people, and she's received so much backlash online. Celebrities really don't want to take a side if they can avoid it. I've been talking about this on stage, to be honest, because the new season of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here has just come out in the United Kingdom. And I really hate that show because they put these celebrities in a jungle and they say to them, oh, we're going to expose you to your greatest fear. And then they always just give them like a, put them in a box full of snakes and spiders, which I think is a very, very superficial way of, of looking at what a celebrity's greatest fear is. Because really, if you're, if you're being honest about it, a celebrity's greatest fear is just losing followers. If you're an actor, you're in the public eye, your number one fear is losing followers. So I've always believed that if they wanted to make that show honest, they wanted to make that show more fun to watch, they should say to these celebrities, hey, um, don't bother about holding this snake. Instead, you have to hold this phone and tweet, I stand with Israel. Because that's scary. That is terrifying. You have to tweet from the river to the sea. That stuff is what really terrifies a celebrity because 99% of them just want to stay neutral on this. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to upset any of their fans. They don't want to upset their agents. They don't want to upset their, their promoters. They're terrified, right? And that's why I kind of feel sorry for the two actors who didn't wear the keffiyeh because... Just by virtue of not wearing the kefir, that is in itself kind of a statement. You know, nowadays doing something and not doing something are both equally statements. So if three people wear the kefir, they support the Palestinian movement. And if two people don't, then everyone's like, oh, these Zionist fascist scum. So I feel sorry for them because these two people get swept up in it despite not wanting to be it was kind of like when a lot of uh you know sporting teams would start kneeling during the national anthem in support of the black lives matter movement so you'd often have a couple of players who would kneel in order to protest police brutality but then there'd be these players who were like well i don't want to kneel because i don't want to be seen as necessarily supporting a cause that has also kind of been associated with some rioting and some looting and I don't want to be associated with a cause that's demonizing the police force as well so then you had all these like white guys who were not necessarily bad people but they were just like I don't I, I don't do I kneel and and be considered an ally to this cause but I'll, I'll upset some people or do I stand and then be called a racist for thinking that George Floyd got what he deserved. It was just so, it was funny to watch, but also so cringy watching all these athletes just try to work out what to do. So they wouldn't stand, they wouldn't kneel. I think some of them just split the difference and would just like do a bit of a crouch in between, maybe tie their shoelaces. 
during the national anthem so that if people asked them, they could be like, you could tell some people you were kneeling, you could tell some other people you were just tying your shoelaces. I just feel sorry for people in the public eye when because of circumstances outside of their control, they all of a sudden are forced to take a stand and, and, and they're forced to issue a statement in through inaction, which is what these two actors have essentially done by not wearing the kefir. But I support everyone's right to protest. All I'm saying is uh, keep it peaceful. Please don't call for genocide. And where possible, make the chance rhyme. Now, I did promise that this entire episode is not going to just be about Israel and Palestine. It is also going to be a bit about Christmas because, guys, we're only a month out from Christmas. And if, you know, Israel and Palestine could just convert to Christianity in the next few weeks, we might get a pause for a day. But we are only a month out from Christmas, which means that Christmas movies are back. Every and the you know annual debate of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie is going to be back in the spotlight. So I look forward to having that conversation again for the twentieth year in a row. The other big story though that's happened this week is people are starting to realise that some Christmas movies are a little bit out of date. Some people are realising that some of these Christmas movies, these movies that we once thought were just wholesome family movies might be somewhat problematic when we look at them through the progressive lens of 2023. One of these movies in particular is the movie Love Actually, which I think, which is a classic British movie. It's got an incredible cast. It's got uh, Hugh Grant. It's got Colin Firth. Uh, it's got uh, Snape. Uh, 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 what's the Alan Rickard who played Snape but also was in Die Hard? It's a great movie. God, it's a good movie, and it's beautiful. It's wholesome. It's heartwarming. But of course, every year people analyze it and they say no, it's got some problems with it. And of course, it's got some problems with it. It was made like twenty years ago. This year, the news articles that are coming out on the movie Love actually are critiquing it for being for body shaming because there's an there's like a character in the movie who's fat, she's a bit chubby, and the whole joke of the movie is that she's fat uh, and she's overweight. And people are saying this is not the message we need to put out over Christmas, especially over Christmas when people are eating lots of turkey and getting fat and feeling ashamed of their bodies. We don't want to exacerbate that by playing this movie where a woman's body is being mocked for being overweight. And look, I understand where that's coming from. I understand that you probably, you know, shouldn't make movies that, you know, disparage women based upon their weight and perpetuate these these really kind of like harmful expectations on what women's bodies should and should not look like. My view is this. The biggest problem with that movie is not the fat shaming of this chubby girl. The biggest problem in that movie is the fact that Hugh Grant who plays the Prime Minister, has an affair with a young female staffer. Surely if we're going to cancel the movie, surely that's that's the main problem with it, right? I mean, here we have a clear power imbalance between the Prime Minister of Britain 
and a lowly female staffer. There's clearly a huge power imbalance here. And if this is pretty much what the whole Me Too movement was about, let's be honest. The whole Me Too movement was about recognizing the power imbalances that exist in the workplace. And I feel like it's there's no real bigger power difference between the prime minister of a country and a young female staffer. I mean, what's crazy is that that storyline was written post the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal. Like, we all knew about how, what's the word, about how uncomfortable that relationship was, that Bill Clinton, the President of the United States, was getting blowjobs from a 21-year-old female staffer in the Oval Office, and everyone was like, oh yeah, he probably like pressured her into doing that, or she felt some sort of pressure to give him sexual favors in order to perhaps advance her career or perhaps to keep her job or keep him happy. We all knew about that when this movie came out. And still, the writers of Love actually were like, nah, this will be good. What if we made the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky Lewinsky story, what if we just made that British? What if we gave them both British accents and, you know, they were kind of like awkward and polite and bumbling like just silly British people? For me, that's the most problematic part of the movie. I think the fat shaming of the female staffer is bad. Personally, I think what looks like the sexual exploitation of another woman might be even worse. But look, this is my point, is that these movies are old. They're like 20 years old. There's always going to be like problematic stuff. And any movie that's older than three years is going to have some issues with it if you look at it closely. I mean, we had that whole thing with Gone with the Wind was on Netflix and then during the Black Lives Matter movement, they took it down because they said this was a romanticized, nostalgic version of slavery. And of course, that's what it was. And so Netflix took it down and then they re-uploaded it and they instead had a message uh, at the start of the movie saying, hey, just so you know, this movie's a bit crook. Just so you know, uh, this is not an accurate depiction uh, of slavery in uh, the United States. because it wasn't. Because uh, I don't think there's a part of that movie where the black female housemaid is raped by her master. So it, it wasn't an honest depiction of slavery. I think people knew it wasn't an honest depiction of slavery. Nonetheless, Netflix was like, let's just make sure everyone knows that this, is not, this wasn't a documentary. So they just put up this warning before the movie and then everyone was like, okay, I guess that's fine. I think we should just start doing that with all movies, every like all songs, all movies. Anything that was like before 2017 is going to have to require some sort of explanation or warning before you chin into it. So for love, actually, I think just like keep playing the movie. We all love the movie. It's nice. It's heartwarming. There's that really cute scene with the little boy at the end when he, he runs through airport security And again, that's kind of problematic because, of course, the white kid manages to get through airport security without being randomly selected. Of course, that's just a point about white privilege if you really think about it carefully. It's a cute scene, though. He gets through and he sees the girl at the 
at the gates and they have a bit of a moment and it's heartwarming. You see young love, nice stuff, beautiful stuff, heartwarming stuff. We all enjoy a bit of that. But I think you still need to have a bit of a warning before the movie. So maybe just have a little warning the way they do before Gone with the Wind. Just have a little warning that pops up on the screen before you watch Love Actually that says, hey, um, sorry about all the fat shaming in this. If you're a bit overweight, that's okay. Uh, Look at Lizzo. She's doing great. She's an icon. Yeah, she's kind of being sued at the moment for apparently doing a bit of fat shaming and workplace harassment and bullying herself. But Lizzo's doing great. You're doing great. You're fine. If you're a bit overweight, that's fine. You don't have to be a size zero. It's all good. Um, Also, if you are the prime minister of a country, you probably shouldn't engage in a sexual relationship with a staffer just because the power imbalance will raise some eyebrows when you eventually uh, go public with that relationship. Just have that before. Just a little, maybe just a booklet. It's going to have to be a long message to explain all the things that are wrong with the movie. Just like, maybe they should just play a movie before the movie. Just like, I think the movie runtime for that is like, I don't know, just over two hours or so. Maybe just give them a brochure to read before they watch the movie. Show them like a documentary about the Me Too movement before they watch the movie. Just give people the context they need to know that this movie is a bit crook. Or we can just trust that people can figure it out themselves. That's a novel idea. We can, can, we can trust that people who are consuming content can figure out themselves whether or not the thing being portrayed in the movie is good or bad. Maybe we don't have to tell people what their morals should be. Maybe they can just figure it out themselves. That's the episode this week. Thank you for tuning in and listening. I'm on tour at the moment. I'm kind of always on tour, I suppose. I'm doing a show in Munich on the 30th of November, my birthday. If you are in Munich and you'd like to give me a birthday present, come along to that. Then I'm doing a show in London on the 6th of December at what I think could be the best comedy club in the world, Top Secret Comedy in Soho. Come along to that. Tickets were just released for my shows at the Fringe World Festival in Perth and Fremantle over January and February. And then I'll be back in Melbourne, the hometown. I'll be back there in March and April for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with a new show. Haven't gone, that hasn't gone on sale yet. It will be on sale soon. If you head to my website, michaelshafer.com, you'll see all the shows that are currently on sale up there. You can grab tickets to those ones. Or you can sign up to the mailing list and then you'll be the first to find out when those shows do go on sale so you don't miss out because sometimes the shows sell out. And then people message me on the day and say, hey, can I come to the show? And I know they're just direct messaging me because they want me to be like, oh yeah, sure, I'll put your name on the door and give you a free ticket. And, but then I say to them, oh no, it's, it's sold out. And then you know they don't respond. So to avoid that happening, Sign up to the mailing list. You'll be the first to find out when shows go on sale. In the meantime, have another fun week of protesting. If you're in the, the inner city of Melbourne, uh, I'm sorry about the parking problems that you are facing. I really think that the international media needs to put more attention to that. I'd, I'd like to see the reporters from CNN and the BBC uh, on the streets of Northcote fielding questions about the ongoing dispute between the residents and the council there because that really is... 
it really is the issue that is not getting enough attention in the current climate. Thank you for listening this week. I'll see you all next week. Good night.